the Mind Body Connection podcast. The Body and Mind. With your host, Dr. Phil Parker. Hi, and welcome to this episode of the Mind Body Connection podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Phil Parker, and today I've got the incredible pleasure of speaking to a great friend and mentor of mine, uh, Judy Delosia. Uh, She has been around the field of personal change and development since the early 70s, hanging out with the founders of NLP in California and some amazing people, including Gregory Bateson and Milton Erickson. I'm going to talk to her about that, about her life and uh, things she can teach us from her deep experience of understanding the mind and the body from a particularly unique perspective. So a very warm welcome to Judy Delosia. I hope you enjoy finding out from someone who's been there, who, who was there at the start of many of these things, meeting some of these incredible people, learn something interesting that makes a difference to you. So welcome, Judy. So lovely to see you. Always a pleasure. Um, one of my one of my quiet heroes. Uh, so much stuff that you've done, which I've covered in the introduction already. Uh, great to have you on this podcast, which is all about the mind-body connection. So that's the mind, the body. And how they connect. So I start with this kind of basic question with most people, which is, so for you, what is, how do you define the mind-body connection? How do you think about it? How do you explain it to people? Well, I always kind of think about the idea, first of all, how is it not connected? (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's like, how, how could it possibly not be connected? Otherwise, I would be this like floating head, you know, just kind of moving around. Um, I think, you know, over time, we began to think of mind as something that is brain as opposed to something that's produced by this living organism. And I think that's a difference that makes a difference when people think of mind, quite often they think of brain. And when I think of cognitive mind, I think of up here, that space behind my eyes, you know, where when I'm thinking, right? as opposed to mind being something that's produced through the pathways of every signal that's sent, that's sent out through the organism. So can I, can I think in different ways? Yeah, I mean, I can think cognitively and I can think also with my body. Um, sometimes I say to people, if you're trying to do something and you're very clear up here, that's what you want, but you go for it and something stops you, you know, Who's in charge of the house there? Where, you know, where, you know, as I say in Greek, Pios Kani Commando Sto Spititu, who's in charge of your house? I mean, I'd say there's something underneath. And what is it underneath? You know, it's that whole underlying system that understands a set of connections called, you know, my body. And also, the biggest connection all is the fact that the nervous system the spinal cord doesn't stop at the neck. It goes all the way down to the tailbone and innervates the whole body. So the whole body is a thinking mechanism. So the idea that there is a split between the mind and body is only an idea that the conscious mind can have. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that, even the, even the con- conversation, you know, the, the, the mind is in the brain. Well, as soon as you say that, you're already stepping into anatomy, aren't you, if, if the mind is in the brain? Then yeah. the mind and the brain connect. I mean, it's as I say, pretty much at the beginning of every podcast. It's kind of a trick question, really, because as soon as we have the word connection, it suggests they are two discrete entities. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that that's the, that's where Bateson would say it's an error in in, in epistemology, right? It's a, it's an error in our thinking that leads us down a certain pathway, and yeah. that pathway is to make the assumption, the underlying assumption, that they're somehow not connected. Um, and that's erroneous because you can't do without the other. You can't have one without the other. <laughs> I yeah. guess you could think about it like, like, uh, like, like nicotine, you know, there's like a lot of ways that you can take nicotine, like it, you know, what do they call it? What is the way in which you, you can smoke the cigarette or you can, you can do a patch or the delivery system. It's like the delivery, the body's not just the delivery system. <laughs> something else so i agree it's a trick question (laughs) and yeah one of the reasons i started this podcast was i came across some people on social media and i was talking about the mind-body connection they were going it's all nonsense there is you know it doesn't exist 
Um, and I was like, that's, that's such an interesting, what? What? yeah, interesting position. But they were like, no, 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 you can't. Basically, their argument was you can't affect the body with the mind. And there's no evidence for that whatsoever. And uh, there's been some great examples. I'd be interested to hear what yours is. But there's been some great examples and people on the on the uh, podcast so far saying, well, here's here's my best example. One was Dr. David Hamilton, who said um, to a guy who said this, there's no evidence of the mind body connection. He said, well, you know, when you get excited by looking at pictures of naked women or imagining naked women, is there any physiological response in your body to that? And the guy went, oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Uh, I mean, the fact that this is a, a, an interactive systemic, uh, you know, this is a, a system and it's all connected. And it's just a question of where I put my attention. Yeah. To me, it's just a question of attention. Yeah. So I want to talk to you a little bit about the early days of. Uh, NLP, which you were involved in in, I think, the 70s. I want to talk a little bit about your uh, your contribution because I'm assuming it was massive, particularly because of your um, your major is in dance, if I'm right in thinking. Is that right? That was what you were studying? No, 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 no. no. My, my master's degree and my, and my bachelor's degree is in comparative religion and anthropology. Comparative religion and anthropology. But you are, you are a dancer, aren't you? But I did dance. Yeah, I did did dance for a lot of years. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I'd be interested to know how much of your uh, your input of that had on the development of NLP from your perspective, how important that kind of physicality is. I want to talk about a bit about Bateson, your next door neighbor or neighbor, and Erickson, who you hang out with a bit. So, so much to cover. So let's begin with you and movement and, you know, is that a part of your heritage that you brought that into this conversation in NLP, do you think? Were other people interested as well? I mean, I, I can certainly say from the very beginning or quite early, you know, as representational systems kind of unfolded more clearly about representational systems, um, that, you know, it was kind of obvious about the visual system and what that meant and the, what you could do there and, and also the auditory digital system. But the tonal and the kinesthetic were much less sort of developed in my thinking in terms of the way we could talk about it or how we could use it. And at that time in my memory, it was almost as if when we talked about the kinesthetic system, uh, the physical system, it was talked about as basically a vessel that held emotion as opposed to a, a, a whole uh, system which knows how to learn, which has memory, which codes and decodes information, which understands the relationships of parts in ways that my cognitive mind only stands the, understands the linear aspects of parts, right? Yeah, so, so let, me, let me just clarify some of those because some people won't be deeply familiar uh, uh, with representation. Please, please, please. So representational systems are basically, and you can correct me if I say this wrongly, is, um, is how we process information, how we store information. So there's a visual, which is what we see. So either what we see externally when we look out of our eye windows or what we yeah. process inside of our head in terms of visual images of movies. Auditory then is the, the, the voices or sounds that we run either internally or being aware of external stimulus. And then there's the kinesthetic, which is, yeah. as you kind of say, is almost like a thought of being a bit more primitive or a bit bit less advanced. And I was talking about this this weekend. So we were saying that because people have a tendency to use one more than the other in certain in environments or situations, they'll tend to lean on one heavier than yeah. the other. And we were talking about who, which one the people tend to favor. And the visual one's very interesting because if you go into a room in half a second, a second, you can pick up so much information, just whoosh, scan the room. If you're trying to talk what was in the room, so to have a speak, you, you would just be anyway, you'd have two seconds, one second, it wouldn't convey much information. And kinesthetic, you've got to go and touch it or sense it in some way. So yeah. we, we can process vast amounts of information visually. People are very familiar with that. Auditory, we're quite familiar with. But kinesthetic, the feely bit, which, which includes not only sensation like touching things it also includes sniffing olfactory gustatory those kind of things which are again considered to be kind of like 
almost like lizard-like behaviors, you know, kind of <laughs> low-level uh, uh, invertebrate behaviors. And then sensing, you know, what we said, what's our sense of this? So, yeah. Um, so yeah, so that's just filling in for anybody listening about what these uh, sensations are. And, and you were saying there was a kind of a, an awareness of visual and auditory, but the kinesthetic was. Yeah, you know, I mean, I mean, we have this this whole system that we go if we want to take language, for example, or you know, internal dialogue. When I talk to myself or a person talk to myself, we have this we have this thing called language, which is a code. You know, it's a, it's it's the way to talk about something else that's happening in this system or in this outside system or in my relationship with that system. But there's all that that is according to Bateson like eight percent of the the conversation. There's another whole conversation going on, and that's what the body is doing. That's another that's speaking a different language, but it's not a it's a primary language as opposed to a coded secondary language. So even with that visual system, yeah, I might be taking that information in, but I'm taking in information that is it, it is released through the body. And that is mine. That's talking as well. As my friend in Japan used to call it, that's the other conversation. There's two conversations. And, we, and when, when people get out of whack, it's like one conversation doesn't quite match the other conversation. And people walk away going, something wrong with that picture. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't feel so good with that. So um, if I can give you an example, uh, the body has memory. It's called post, you know, some people get post-traumatic stress. That's memory. The body remembers that. And I can think about it like crazy up here. Yeah. Oh, I wish it weren't happening. I want it to change. But I, I have to understand that that's a different conversation. And how I relate to that conversation in myself and others is really what it means to be embodied. It's about having the awareness in my body. Uh, I broke my arm on a horse when I was probably in my, or I'm trying to think my early twenties. And it was one of those really nasty breaks, you know, with three weeks of traction and hospital and heavy casts and nuts and bolts and all this. And like 20 years later, I'm getting a massage and this masseuse says, what did you do to your arm? And I broke it like, you know, 20 years ago. She said, when are you gonna get the cast off? <laughs> because I was carrying my shoulder lower as if that was still there. The body does have memory. If, if it didn't remember things and code them in certain ways in you know, our past or even the anxiety to the future, right? What, what is that? Well, because also we, we, although we may cog have cognition about stuff, we feel it not in our, our minds, we feel it in our, our stomach feels sick, our heart races, you know, there's a, there's an output yeah. from that in the, yeah. into the tissues, into the muscles, into the. Yeah, absolutely. And, absolutely. And, <laughs> and I think, you know, if you look at something like uh, the heart math at Stanford, I think there's other things going on too. I just was talking to a doctor in Berlin recently um, about how much influence you know, that has on our kinesthetic system. And as part of what the whole leveling up has to, I think has, is going on, you know, this leveling up so that I can bring my whole system up out of the survival strategy modes of, you know, fear and aggression and binary thinking, because my body's signaling me like crazy, do something different. <laughs> it's not up here going, oh, I better do something. My body's going, Eek. You know, I can't breathe, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's kind of a no-brainer, really, for me. <laughs> but it's also, I mean, as you know, I, I worked as an osteopath for a long time. And, and one of the things that makes people go and seek medical help, osteopathic help, is when their body doesn't work anymore. Their body won't do stuff anymore. You know, they can put yeah. up all sorts of stuff. But when they can't move anymore or when everything hurts, uh, then finally they wake up and go, oh, I need to, I need to pay attention to this. But the yeah. problem they have is they have, they don't have a very good dictionary or language to understand what does this mean? What's, what's going on here? Yeah. I, I agree with that. And I think the first thing it is, is that it's a signal, you know, and when, when in that, when in that development of that illness or, anxiety you know when were the first signals that you didn't pay attention to that's what i always kind of go there it's, it's just a signal system it's there to remind me to do something 
if my toe hurts, it's saying, I need something, you know, something needs done here, but we just override those signals in our busy, busy life. Yeah. So what, so what got you interested then in the, this kinesthetic, the more physical, somatic, body language what, what intrigued well, you well i really wanted to honor it as a full-on system uh, uh for learning for coding for decoding and for memory and and yeah so that if if i want to learn something i can also step in and use my body in that process as well as i can watch and see what's happening as well as i can listen to a set of rules because in reality, if you look at who are those children in school that are considered slow, quite often they're the kids who learn through their body. You've been a trainer. I've been a trainer for a long time. You're doing training and somebody says, could I see that process like five more times, please? You know, you've had people go, well, what would you say if somebody asked this question? And then you have the people who really learn with their body who are going, can we just do it now? We just do, because I learn by doing. And I just think it, it that we have kind of cut that off in some ways, you know, especially in the educational system, which is all very visual. Do you think we're also in a bit of a danger of that at the moment with, I mean, our conversation, luckily you're in America, I'm, I'm in the UK, we can do it through Zoom. But with COVID, everybody is, well, certainly most of the people I know, working with clients, having conversations and doing it this way. And that's very visual, very auditory, but not very kinesthetic. There's not much movement. We sat down a lot of the time, staring at the screen for hours. We don't connect with people. It's amazing how much information we can get without those systems, yeah. channels yeah. available. But uh, do you think that's an issue if this keeps on going? Because people get familiar with Zoom and going, oh, this works. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, I think it's a double-edged sword. I think it's a double-edged sword. Uh, it gives us a great opportunity, and I'm so grateful for the opportunity that I can connect, you know, to to my world community. And uh, at the same time, you know, as they said at Harvard at Harvard Medical, you know, sitting is the new smoking. You know, <laughs> so, you know, take good care, and you know, do things uh, with some wisdom and balance. It's the tools we have now. I'm grateful for the tools we have now. I'll be so happy to get back to uh, being able to get on an airplane and come visit you and have a have a proper hug. At the same time, I go, wow, can you imagine if we didn't have this tool right now? So I have a lot of gratitude for that. It reminds me of some guys I knew 15 years ago now. They developed this technology. They're really interested in technology and wearable technology. And uh -huh. this thing called the, I think it was called the hug t-shirt. And it had a little bit of uh, technology here, right? So if you were wearing your hug t-shirt and I was wearing mine and we were like connected uh, through some kind of network, then when you stroked your arm like this, up this, my t-shirt on the other end would just oh, get me oh, no, Now we need that now. Now we need that, you know? You know, um, well, they say you need, there's certain things you need to stay healthy and touch is one of those, you know? So at least touch yourself, yeah. Or I have a dog here, you know, and a couple of birds and guinea pigs. So I have things to touch, but it is important. Virginia Statia said something about hugs, didn't she? You need like a certain yeah. number to watch. Ten, ten a day, 10 a day, just maintenance. That's just maintenance. Yeah, just to survive. <laughs> <laughs> so we let's are social creatures. We are social creatures. Yeah. Let's move on then to Bates and tell me what would you want, what do you want to tell? I would imagine many people listening to this wouldn't have heard of Bateson. Um, he's not that well known, I think, generally. People don't, if you say the word, most people I don't think would know much about him. Um, he was very interesting. I was reading a bit about him today, about his dad. Uh, who his was a, family, yeah. So his dad was like yeah. a Blake, William Blake scholar, wasn't he? And a premier biologist, I think. Yeah, he rediscovered Mendel's uh, right, Mendel Gregor Mendel. research and coined the word genetics, actually. Coined the word genetics, yeah. And he had a, a, a an interesting relationship to science and art. He thought science, this is the William, the, the, the dad, science was proper and art was, was interesting, but not a real career. And, and, yeah. and that kind of stuff. And then his, he had three sons, I think. One who died in the First World War, one killed himself. 
Yeah. Uh, one committed suicide yeah. and Gregory, who he really wanted to be a biologist and, and Gregory didn't want to be. And my understanding is that the field of anthropology at that time was about 20 years old. It was quite a new discipline when he was a young guy. And that one of the mentors or teachers that he had said, you might like this, you know, <laughs> you might like this anthropology stuff. <laughs> and so he, uh, so he went in that direction. And then of course met R Margaret Mead and then that's a whole, a whole nother story. But what I loved about Gregory Bateson is that for me, he was a Renaissance man. And he was a Renaissance man in the sense that he covered so many spaces, so many different, different disciplines, I should say, because he had this obsession with the pattern that connects. You know, how, you know, how is like one thing like another? How is like the leaf of an oak tree like a rock? You know, how can you look at something and tell that even though it's in a rock form now that at one time it was a living thing? I mean, he was always looking for these patterns. So he had biology running in his veins, no doubt, in terms of his deep appreciation for the living world, but also uh, in systemic thinking. So if I look at, you know, I look at um, Virginia Satir is like the mother of systemic constellations. She really is. She started that business. And Gregory, you know, was just a person who thought so big thought systemically and the connections in the system. And I think had a deep awareness that in reality, everything runs through our nervous system. So it's all questionable. Yeah, beliefs are useful, but they're not necessarily true. So, the, so the, one of the opposite positions, I think, would be the kind of scientific reductionism, which is kind of dig deep to understand the mechanism of the clock, to understand we understand how all the bits yeah. work, then we can understand how the, the watch works. That's the kind of yeah. the model. Yeah. And I think uh, Gregory was thinking differently, wasn't he? It was more like, as you say, how how is that like that? What, what's the connection yeah. between these things? I mean, that whole idea of mind and nature, you know, I think that we just like we can say things like mind, body split. And, it, you know, it's a cognitive idea is a concept which is, is not based in any anything, but it causes us to act as if a certain way. Right. Even though. Right. I think the same is true of this idea of mind and nature. We forget we are nature. We just are, you know, and as opposed to in it or out of it, we are it. And that mind and nature reflect each other. I mean, that was one of the, the deep points, I think, that touched my heart. Tell so us more about that mind and nature reflect each other. What do you mean by mind, first of all, compared to nature? And what well, when I look at a tree um, that that you know at the university of california we have oak trees and occasionally these oak trees get attacked by a certain moth and when this moth attacks one tree this tree emits a emits a signal to other trees to protect yourself this moth is coming that signal that is sent through the mind of that tree is mind and mind we we send signals it's called mind and it reflects nature. We any living thing has produces mind. It sends signals. My favorite one, you you know, as a doctor, I love this one. I always thought vitamin D was just just a vitamin. You know, you take the vitamin, but no, it's how we're like a tree because it's this deep relationship between the cells and the sunshine and this magic transformation that happens that releases something my body needs. To me, that's beautiful because yeah. it reminds me that I'm like a tree that way. But I think it's, we'll come on to this later on, but I think it's, it's a big conversation and question how much we have stepped out of remembering that we're part of nature. And instead we use nature as a resource. We mine it, we drill it, we burn it. We, and now here we are, you know, in this place. Yeah, where, yeah. 
Yeah. Which is unsustainable. Um, no. Carry on doing what we're doing. And, yeah. and it's partly, again, this, it's a little bit like the mind-body split. It's like seeing ourselves as separate, that we are not yeah. in any way connected to this in a way that indigenous nature, native cultures never, never, under, never yeah. could allow themselves to think that way because then they would, you know, rape the soil and kill all the bison and there would be nothing to eat. And, and yeah. somehow we've managed to get ourselves into this hole. Well, you know, I always said, you know, from being from religious studies originally, you know, and well, still am. In fact, a lot of my friends are still trying to get me up to Berkeley, you know, to get a doctorate in <laughs> church duty. No, I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> but, you know, that that deep awareness, I always said the first prayer probably that was ever uttered was, you know, when somebody killed that bear and leaned down and... <laughs> took in that last breath of the, of the bear and said, thank you, because today I eat you, tomorrow you may eat me, you mm. know, um, that I understand, you know, this, the, the, the sacredness of that breath and the fact that I get to continue to live. You know, I mean, we've thrown that out a long time ago, but not in the more traditional, you know, that that was the sky gods coming out of you know the great rift valley and overrunning the goddesses you know the <laughs> <laughs> well certainly in the native american tradition i know that's one of the things they do isn't it when they when they take an animal for all yeah. vegetables to eat they say yeah. thank you for you know yeah. for your gift uh that sustains us and that yeah. brings the, an awareness doesn't it to that rather than this mass produce open the box in a box of frosted cheerios you know, that yeah, comes from the Magic yeah. Frosty Cheerio factory somewhere over there. And we don't think about it in any way at all. No, that's it. I mean, you know, I, I remember I remember talking to kids from big cities that had, they never saw a cow in a complete form, except in a picture, maybe. Mm. So, you know, it's hard to have a sense of connectedness to the life of something when you only see it in bits and pieces in a grocery store. So you coming know, back to, I, to Bateson, so uh, did did you study with him? Was he like a, a lecturer tutor, or was it just like a friendship because you were neighbors? No, no, he was a he was a professor at the University of California at Santa Cruz uh, for quite a while while I was there. Uh, we lived in a commune kind of thing. <laughs> it was the seventies, <laughs> and uh, Bob Spitzer, Robert Spitzer. Uh, had a big piece of land up in the Santa Cruz mountains and um, he had a he had science behavior books was the first company that produced you know that published any of the NLP books they the science behavior books was the company that published uh, I think you know the first NLP book actually um, NLP volume one I think and some of the others so um, there were a bunch of houses up there and there was uh, John Grinder and myself and there was Gregory Bateson living across the street with his wife and his daughter, Nora, who was a you know young girl at the time, little girl. And then there was a three out of four of the uh, high tones, which is a very famous jazz quartet that lives in Santa Cruz or lived in Santa Cruz at the time. <laughs> And so they live, they lived there. So um, he, for me, he was a neighbor for many, many students. He was their professor. Um, but I can remember, you know, we would talk about things and he read this, he read, which one did he read? Was it? I guess it was the on the meta model. I'm trying to remember. Structure of magic, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, the structure of magic. Thank you. He read the structure of magic. He loved that book. He loved that book. And, you know, I remember him asking John Grinder at the time, you know, who was a linguist. He said, do you, what do you, do you think I is the biggest nominalization of all? I remember him saying that to John and John goes, oh, it's a pronoun. <laughs> Going, oh my god this guy's brilliant you know <laughs> because you <laughs> underneath that tiny little word he's pointing to this whole deep structure that lives in the whole rest of this underlying system 
we might call that the body, uh, you know, that's embedded, ingrained in all kinds of things in there and beliefs and values and ideas. Um, but I remember that being, for me, kind of a pivotal moment. I better just, I, again, I better just explain to people who don't know what normalization is. Oh, okay, uh, please, don't <laughs> that, yeah. So, is um, it the biggest frozen fish we have? <laughs> so normalization is a bit complicated, but fascinating. Uh, I've written that book about it as well, if you want to check it out, because it's cute. <laughs> but uh, normalization is a verb, which is a doing word, a process, something that is occurring in time and space. So like, if I dance, you see me dance, and when I stop dancing, there is no more dance. And it would be crazy to say to me, if Judy said to me, hey, Phil, I love your dance. Where do you keep it when you're not using it? Can I borrow it? I go, well, it yeah. doesn't exist yeah. in that shape and form. It's not because dance is a noun and dancing is a verb. We should say lovely dancing, Phil, not I liked your dance, because dance doesn't exist in that way. And the real test from NLP is, question you ask is, can you put it in a wheelbarrow? of yeah. indeterminate size. So you can't put dance in a wheelbarrow. You can't, it doesn't shut like that. You can put the moon and you could put this cup and you could put Judy in a wheelbarrow because she's, these are nouns, normalizations are verbs, which sounds like a strange thing to be bothering talking about, but it is really important because as soon as we noun it, it creates this staticness, this, this stability. Yeah. So we say, I have this anger inside me, I'm, this anger, I feel this anger. We're talking about it like a thing. And the same with disease, when people talk about, I have diabetes, or, that's not actually accurate. It's a process. And as soon as you name it as a noun, it becomes very stuck and difficult to change. If you can keep it as a fluid process that comes and goes and stops and starts, we've got more chance to kind of get in there and shift it because it's more temporary, it's more variable. So that's one is why it's important. We could talk about that for hours, but that's just explain what normalizations are. So you said the I apologize for using that code that code word, but, but you're right. It, you know, what he was trying to say is aren't we really more of a process than than a frozen thing and that in that process we're interacting with another living world and two living worlds interacting is going to create constant process. So this thing called I is really something that is potentially changing all the time unless I'm trying to hold on to a certain idea very, very tightly. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's, it is a really interesting thing that he says, you know, net, talking about this, this possibly the, almost the smallest word, you know, A it and is. I. Yeah. A and I. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but what it encompasses, it also reminds me of reading, I was reading a bit of Buckminster Fuller and he has a book which is called I appear to be a verb. I am not a noun. I appear to be I'm a verb. I'm not a noun. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which yeah. is the same conversation. I don't, do those two cross paths at any point, you know, Bates? And I don't know, but they were certainly contemporaries in yeah. a way. You know, they would have overlapped for sure. I listened to Alan Watts, who I still adore. I don't know if you ever listened to Alan, but when I listened to Alan Watts, I, I, I feel like, you know, he and Gregory must have spent hours and days and months talking to each other because I hear the such similar ideas and sensibilities, you know, coming. Did, did Gregory know Aldous Huxley as well? I know Erickson did. Oh, I do believe so. Yeah. I do believe so. Yeah. I think I and Huxley, of course, knew Gregory. Uh, I mean, sorry, knew Milton Erickson and also Aldous Huxley knew Milton. Uh, sorry. Yeah, Aldous knew Milton Erickson as well as Bates and knew Milton Erickson. Yeah. I even think, I think I read that he, that Bateson introduced those two, I think, and then- I, I think Milton, that's probably accurate. Milton yeah. went to hang out with Aldous Huxley and they were gonna write some kind of book together about, because I think Aldous talked about when he was creating going into some kind of deep space where he, and so Mer Erickson was very interested in that from a trance perspective and they did some work together and I think then, Aldous had a fire in, and his library is destroyed and he was distraught about it and didn't want to talk about it anymore. And there's, I'm sure there's a, 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 it might even be a book that you wrote, one of your books, uh, Patterns of Milton Erickson, I think it might be, where he talks about he's sitting in the library with Aldous Huxley and, he's, and he says, I'm going to pick a book, I'm going to read, uh, I'm going to open it randomly on a page and I'm going to say, what's the first word on the page? And <laughs> trusting his unconscious mind, which had read the book, would somehow pull it out and yeah. he managed to do it. Is that one of your yeah. books? 
That, it, no, I don't remember that. I remember, I remember him, uh, Altus, you know, going into this deep trance and sitting on the edge of a cliff in a trance, and he's sitting on the edge of the cliff, and the only, the only lifeline connection he has is only the sound of Milton's voice. That was his, you know, the, his connectedness in a way, as I call it, the lifeline that allowed him to take take this very deep, deep journey into his own you know, inner world, I, I remember that. And then, uh, then Gregory went to, with uh, Margaret Mead to talk to Erickson about trance before they went to do their work in Bali, trance work in Bali as anthropologists. And mm. then it was Gregory who wrote the letter, the original letter for Richard and John, Richard Bandler and John Grinder to go and, and meet Dr. Erickson. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Yeah. Do all that. Interesting time. So yeah, so let's talk then a bit about Milton Erickson, who I find a fascinating uh, person. Uh, I never met him. I was in Phoenix roughly around the time he died, bizarrely enough, as a young, young teenager. I think he died in 82, I think. 80, 1980. Yeah, yeah Gregory. Uh, Milton and my mom all died in 1982 and I'm sorry 1980 and so I figured they had probably reorganized all of heaven pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> so you spent some time within it I'm right in thinking with Milton Erickson um staying in his little guest house is that right in the yeah so well, I did not stay in his guest house although oh. other people did because uh, uh John and I were staying at a hotel or I oh, was okay. staying Hotel. But you hung out, you hung out with him. We hung out, yeah, we definitely hung out. But some people won't have heard again of Milton Erickson. Probably quite a lot of people will because they've heard me talk about him before. But if you were to describe him firsthand, because mine's only secondhand, uh, firsthand description, how would you describe him? What, why is he of interest? Well, uh, first of all, I would describe him as uh, very intriguing. I mean, you know, because you meet this. You know, when I met him, he was 76. When when most of us from NLP, I would say all of us from NLP, it was from the time he was 76 until he passed away. Beautiful, elder, white-haired man dressed all in purple, which he said it was the only color he could appreciate. So in the wintertime, he would wear sort of that dark, rich purple. And in the summertime, he would wear more lilac, a light, light purple uh, in a wheelchair. Uh, extraordinarily observant uh, and uh, very, very sweet and very tricky. <laughs> <laughs> tricky? Very tricky. Tricky in what way? Tricky. Yeah. Very, yeah. Well, I mean, he uh, he was a man of his time. You know, he was a man of his time. He he had he had had a, a pretty rough road to hoe, as we would say. You know, he came out of that time in. Uh, in where people did what do you call it where you lay on analysis you know they where you were doing analysis that was sort of what the, the structure at the time was and he he said look you know i want to get on with my life you know i don't want to spend seven or eight years on an analyst couch in order to decide whether i should get married or not you know um i kind of want to move on with my life and so that sort of motivated him into this idea of a briefer therapy in a way and, you know, he, he, you know, was a doctor, uh, they, he pushed people's edges because he was a pioneer, very much like Virginia Satir was a pioneer, uh, pushing the edge of the, the known model at the time and getting backlash. I think they tried to take his credentials away at least once. Um, and then he became, you know, very, very famous for his ability to use altered states to help people change. And he would get people who were at the end of the line, you know, everything else had tr they tried and failed. And um, they would find themselves, you know, with Milton. And um, it, you can go back to the 50s and you can see him doing absolutely beautiful official ritualistic hypnosis as defined at that time to be done, you know, in a therapeutic setting. When I met him, 
he was just telling a short story after another short story after another short story. And you knew very well he was talking about you, but there was just this ambiguity because he wasn't using your name. <laughs> so <laughs> I can give you an example. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it was always kind of a joke that people would go to visit Milton Erickson and then they would go away and some of them would go, wow, this guy changed my life. But most of the time people would go away and go, yes, yeah, an old man told a bunch of old stories, you know, who cares, you know, but their life would change in these beautiful and amazing ways. <laughs> they didn't necessarily always reflect it back, but many times they would write him a note, you know, well, I'm married and have four kids now. Life is so beautiful, right? Da, 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 da. So <laughs> John and I would go to visit him. And uh, John would say to me, call Melton and uh, let him know that we're coming. And I go, okay. So I'd call up and I'd, he, he would go, who is this? Melton would say, who is this? And I'd say, this is Judith Delosier. He would go, I can't recognize you. Not, I don't recognize you. <laughs> I can't recognize you, right? Oh, you know, I live with John Grinder. Oh, okay. Okay. You know? Right. No, this is a man of his times. You know, that's that's how I say it. beautiful guy. But he had ideas about how life should be. So what was he trying so, to say that you guys should be married? And uh, is that what the message like is? that? Something <laughs> like so. So this goes on three or four times. Right. So finally, John goes, well, call Milton. I go, no way. You call him because every time I call, I have to go through this crazy you know, thing. And he goes, well, just say you're Judy Grinder. So I call and I go, hi, you know, Milton, this is Judy Grinder. Oh, come over immediately. <laughs> so, and so when we arrive, he meets us outside and he gives me this bouquet of flowers. And he asks John to push, you know, to push his chair over by the Palo Verde tree. And he asks John to kiss me under the Palo Verde tree. Now, this was his way of being okay with this relationship, which for him, I think was a little bit outside what, yeah. 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 And then he began to tell these interesting stories. These two young psychiatrists came to him once and they wanted to know if they should, you know, live together or should they get married? And I didn't know. <laughs> so, like, it just, you know, it's, this these short little clips all of them sort of sending this <laughs> this message and towards the end of his life that's how i saw him work was you know he would just this sort of a foot in both the conscious world and the unconscious world and having a person stand and hold in that space and make the connection through the system it was very beautiful yeah so a lot of people talk about him as non-authoritarian uh, hypnotic process instead of saying give up smoking. Uh, <laughs> do you think he was uh, he was trying to get you to get married or just get you to look at that? What what do you think his take on it? Yeah, you know, I I I I think probably both at the same time. I think you know to look at that, but also I think you know in his world that was the appropriate thing. Mm. We had a thing yeah. that you had a kind of stages of life, didn't you? That you would yeah. be a kid, then you'd be yeah. a teenager, then you'd fall in love, then you get married, then you have kids, then you become a grandparent. Yeah. And if yeah. any of those stages were missed out in his model, uh, then problems could ensue. I think that was one of the. Yeah, I mean, I think I think things like that were just when I say he was a man of his time, and you know, he must have been born in when was he born? When would he been born? Well, in nineteen hundred. Yeah, 1900, uh, yeah. you know, if he died in 1980, he would have been born and he was 80. Mm, yeah. So he would have lived through the Great Depression and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. And interestingly, he was married twice, wasn't he? He had a. He was. Carol, he had Carol, his, his first daughter by his first wife, and then he married Betty, and I think they had four children. Yeah. Um, oh, no, wait. He didn't have Betty. Betty was not from his, his first wife. Uh, no, Betty was his second wife, and they also, I think, had a daughter named Betty. Oh, okay. Carol, was, Carol was his daughter from his. Yeah. He's a very interesting character. Um, he did lots of, you say, radical revolutionary things, some of which are quite, <gasps> really? <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, and, and other things which are quite amazing. 
And certainly yeah. one of yeah. my favorite books, which I'm pretty sure you are co-editor or author of, is the, the Hypnotic Patterns of Milton Erickson, which is where it breaks down his language structures. So there'll be actual transcripts of what he said and then what it meant. So you yeah. would have a, little, a, a sentence and what it meant. And sometimes the sentence would be on the left-hand side and then the description be on the right-hand side. And it will be one sentence and there'll be like six pages of explaining what that, why he's chosen yeah, that. Very yeah, the importance of that. I mean, when I think of something like now, when we talk about timeline therapy, for example, that there's a whole sort of TM, timeline therapy. But, you know, that's where I learned timeline therapy, to be honest, was with Milton Erickson because he very much would go, you know, go into a special space, allow yourself to go along life's highway, go back through back through this highway. You know, uh, maybe somebody shows up because they're going through a difficult time and it, and, and it hurts and it doesn't feel good. Um, and he'll go, well, let's go down life's highway. We'll go back in time, you know, find something that you got in trouble for before the age of six because you couldn't do anything very bad before the age of six. And, you know, you're probably going to get a spanking for that, you know, and it probably will hurt worse, you know, before than it does during or after, you know, and then this just becomes sort of a whole model for my thinking of change personal history. This becomes a whole model for my thinking of re-imprinting. This comes a whole model from my thinking for timeline therapy. It was from my personal experience. I thought it was all there. Mm, yeah, he did a lot of that stuff. There's a story I think about the, the November Man. I think that's what it's called. The, the, the November Man. Yeah, which yeah. is you know, this kid who I think didn't have a dad or dad left or something, and he always regretted he didn't have a dad. And then he took him, created him an imaginary man who would visit yeah, November. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think the out story or the back story was this was a person who wanted to have children and be a parent and said I have no skill because I didn't have any parent. And he created this character who, you know, came and um, came and became a parent for this person over time so that they had that knowledge so that it gave them the freedom. I mean, that, those are beautiful things. And in, from a neuro-linguistic programming point of view, we model, we're able to model some of that out, mm. really. Because one of the things he's doing there is you know, instead of that model of well, your history is what it is and tough shit, you know. <laughs> He's like, well, <laughs> the first thing is our history is what we remember it to be. Our history, yeah. our, our recollection of what happened is often quite wonky from what really happened. So those, are those, fragments, those are those great fragments of history yeah. that get held together with the belief somewhere along the line. But if we're going to, you know, have a slightly uh, inaccurate version of history, or it might be better to have a more useful inaccurate version of history yeah, that yeah, might yeah. about the future. And that comes against, you know, the model that he would be working, other people would currently be working from the kind of psychoanalytical model, psychodynamic model of go back, feel, experience what how awful it was, and so you learn something. And yeah. saying, well, maybe that's just the model that, Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. Maybe there are other ways to look at it. Well, uh, he was quite think, revolutionary in that as well, wasn't he? Thinking. Yeah, I mean, that's why I always say I think he really, really was, he was really, a, a, you know, a, pushing a frontier. He was really pushing an edge of development. I think uh, I think Virginia Satir was too. I think in many ways, Gregory was too. You know, um, you know Gregory maintained, at, even at the University of California, they would try to give the California huge amounts of money to the university to get him to do research and to do research on something quantitative to do, I mean, sorry, to do a quantitative kind of research on something that was a qualitative thing by nature. He would go, you're crazy. You can't, you shouldn't, you can't do that. And it would drive them crazy at the university because they want the money, of course. You know, yeah. you go, no, I won't do it. <laughs> so we've um, we said we're going to talk to you for about half an hour. It's been much longer than that, as always. Um, and I don't want to take up any more of your time. But to to finish with, it's been fascinating talking to you as ever. Uh, and so it's really one of the things I really, I mean, there's so many things I love about talking to you anyway. But it's really nice to talk to somebody who was there. You know, who uh. who does know. Who did meet Erickson? Who did hang out with Bates? I mean, uh, who has that connection? That's a really important thing. Um, so, thank you for sharing them. Um, my pleasure. My pleasure. If you if you were to look at 
everything you've learned and you have learned a lot and taught a lot and developed a lot of things it's a slightly impossible question but if there was one thing that you wanted to share so this is this would be my top tip out of all the things i know this is this is my giveaway this is this is something i would come back to again and again and again what would it be I would say, do not forget that the model that you have of whatever it is, is a model. And models by definition are limited. And you base, you base the model on its usefulness and be prepared to allow it to expand or let it go at any moment. I don't care what model it is. A model is just a model. It's a description of the world that allows us to move forward or not in a certain way. And never forget that the model is not the world. And the world is extraordinary out there. And whether it's inside or outside, it's full of symbols. It's full of mystery. And it is full of breath. So that's what I would say. That's lovely. And that's obviously, we were talking about this before we started recording. Uh, we're recording during this weird time in America where the election has kind of been called and some people say it is partisanness within within the American society at the moment and how the hell that's going to resolve. But I think that is the, what you've just said is the answer, isn't it? It's, it if, if people can really get that everything I think is my best grasp of understanding stuff, but be prepared that maybe that's my best understanding based on what I know at the moment. And when I know more, it may be different and be free to not, not be nailed into that. Yeah. You know, and if it, and if it involves something like we were talking about a potential conflict, I have to rise above the idea that it's an either or situation and just acknowledge the fact that both may be true, but I'm neither truth. I'm bigger than either truth. And I can think bigger than either truth and anybody else can as well. Um, because, you know, binary thinking just creates polarity. Polarity creates conflict. And, it, it, and again, I just have to start. And this is very Bateson for me. I have to think more systemically. And if I go, yeah, those are both true. But what else is true? There's a lot more truth and there's deeper truth. And I guess that's what's important right now for me is to keep looking for that deeper, deeper truth. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you very much, Judy. Great to speak to you as ever. And you, Phil, I love your smile. It just makes my heart just, oh, yeah, just to see your picture. You know, when it would come up on the, uh, on the link, I, oh, I love that guy. <laughs> well, look, we'll see you soon in real life. I hope so. I hope so. You take good care over there. Give everybody you can a hug from me. And okay. Uh, okay. Thank Love you so much, Judy. Brilliant. Great to speak yeah. to you. You Ciao. take care. Have a, have a good day. Yeah. Yeah. And you have a good evening. Ciao. The Mind Body Connection Podcast. The Body and Mind.